welcome to uh, the Minnesota Home Ownership Center's ninth episode of the Welcome Home Podcast. My name is Bill Gray, and today we are going to discuss the National Association of Real Estate Brokers, also known as NARAB, their 2022 State of Housing in Black America report. Joining me today are two leaders of NARAB's Twin Cities chapter. We have Cameron Perkett, uh, Mortgage Retail Branch Manager for U.S. Bank, and Rochelle Taylor, a realtor and team lead with Simply Sold Realty Group, REMAX. Uh, welcome to you both. Thank Thanks for joining us. Okay, so I should start uh, by saying that the National Association of Real Estate Brokers is an advocacy organization for black real estate professionals, and it was founded in 1947. The State of Housing and Black America report has been published every year since 2013. Uh, this year's report weighs in at 99 pages, including the appendix, so it really is a significant undertaking with lots of data, and also, and this is the cool part, proposed solutions aimed at reducing the racial homeownership gap. As we know, here in Minnesota, we have one of the largest such gaps between black and white households in the country. 77.5% of non-Hispanic white households own their own home in Minnesota, and that compares to just 30.5% of black households. And this is key to the corresponding wealth gap since home ownership is the number one way that households build wealth in this country. The report pegs the median wealth of white households nationally at more than 12 times that of the median black household, so roughly 218,000 versus just 18,000. Uh, at the state level, a recent study found Minnesota's black-white wealth gap to be the third worst in the nation. No surprise, given our outsized homeownership gap. So let's get to our discussion. Uh, Cameron, you're uh, NAREB Twin Cities president in addition to your day job. What struck you when you took a look at this report? Yeah, and thanks again, Bill, for having me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little biased. I'm a lender, so I always pay attention to... Uh, the lending specific stuff, but for me, um, just kind of the the shift in lenders' appetites to originate FHA mortgages mm -hmm. uh, was was really intriguing for me, especially not only just seeing it from like a guideline standpoint, but and seeing it from a management standpoint, but seeing it actually happen in the market itself and and that impact that it has. So, um, just a, a few few of those reasons that I noted here: um, high mortgage insurance premiums, higher servicing costs. Um, just different different things like that on top of compliance risk and buyback risk that banks face when uh, doing these government loans, specifically FHA, where if they make an underwriting mistake, they're on the hook for you know covering that loan versus having it insured uh, through FHA. So um, those things are all very high level, but they have a real impact here locally because now your smaller lenders are moving away from doing that type of lending. And as we know, um, a, a lot of folks in the black community that are buying homes are using FHA products traditionally. Our low to moderate income folks are using those products. So the less those are available, the more more of an impact that's gonna have on black home ownership here in the Twin Cities. So um, I just thought that was interesting, especially uh, when you get into the stats on, on the state of black housing report, the actual applications uh, for, for black applicants for conventional loans are, are higher really than they've ever been, but that's not having a difference in the actual originations, the actual closed loans for conventional products versus FHA. So it's a, it's an interesting situation. Um, you know, FHA is always going to be a hot topic. And uh, this really, this really creates a lot of, a lot of different barriers in my opinion, when 
a, a black consumer that's looking to buy a home does not have, let's say, full access to all the different lending products like, you know, a, maybe a, a white consumer would for a number of different reasons, not being able to use conventional at a higher level is going to have an impact. We all know about the stigmas that FHA has in the market. When, when you're putting an offer out there, you could be offering the same dollar amount, but if you're going FHA versus conventional, there's always that stigma that, hey, this person's less qualified, that appraisal is going to be more picky. I'm going to go with the, the more clean deal that's going to have a better chance to close. So right. um, I, just, I just think it's, it's very interesting with even though the number of applications have gone up, we're not seeing a difference in conventional financing versus FHA uh, for your black consumer. And uh, one of the, the last challenges I'll say on that that I've personally noticed originating and managing a team of originators is uh, pre-COVID, it seemed like it was easier to get a low to moderate income, maybe a little bit higher debt to income, higher loan to value uh, approval using a desktop underwriter for a conventional program where through COVID to today, it almost seems like those restraints have been tighter. And I find a lot of uh, families that are ending up using FHA that would have been conventional buyers pre-COVID. So it's interesting. It's interesting. Interesting. And yeah, FHA is is a good tool if you need it. Um, if Absolutely. you can qualify for conventional, though, you usually do a little better. The I think the um, the thing that always strikes me about FHA is um, as a seller and, and a friend of mine ran into this. Um, uh, she was selling a, a, a half of her half of a duplex and um she had uh, a conventional offer and an FHA offer. And the FHA offer, um, FHA requires you to fix things before you leave if they're not, if they're not you know, meeting the, the standards of, of, and this is home inspection stuff. So I know that she had this, this balcony with the wider gaps and the bars there. Yep. Um, and she would have had to redo the whole thing. Yep. And the buyer put the money in there for her to do it. But she didn't want. She's trying to sell the house and move it. She's got two house payments right now. What is she? You know, and and so she went with the conventional. And so, you know, um, in addition to um, uh, the discrimination that that might happen, there's also practical things like that that, that impact sellers' decisions when it comes down to that. So, absolutely. Um, so th it'll be really interesting to see how the market changes. Uh, impact that whole equation. And I don't, I mean, you tell me, I don't think we can tell yet. Is that, is that true? Um, haven't had enough time to. Yeah. So we, we are seeing some of the impacts. One of them that's unique right now too, because of COVID and just the market is not only because of how tough it is to get into conventional products when uh -huh. you're, let's just say somebody that doesn't have a one credit, a ton of assets, reserves, whatever it may be. Um, a lot of lenders have used their portfolio products. So if you have like an affordable lending product, mm -hmm. uh, and what I mean by that is lenders are using their own, their their own investor versus, you know, using uh, government funds or using Fannie Freddie. So the problem with that is you lean so heavy on that at a certain point, your cash flow from a business standpoint right. becomes a concern. And now you're kind of in a double situation right. where it's like, okay, it's tough to get these conventionals. We got all the things that come with FHA. Now we're heavy on portfolio. Where yeah. do you go? And I think that's where you're seeing some some challenges in the market right now from a lot of the smaller lenders. Where 
it's it's tough. interesting it is complicated on on both sides of the equation yeah. so yeah. rochelle there i was just going to say regarding fha there's a lot more education that realtors are needing to do with the collaboration of lenders to uh-huh. get other agents to understand that fha is a fine product right and very frequently People are getting into FHA loans because they're having a better monthly payment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it allows them to get into a house and be able to make their own improvements to the house later on. As far as FHA appraisals versus conventional appraisals, they're not all that different. Mm-hmm. A lot of the um, differences are things that agents have just amplified. And they're selling that to their um, to their listers, to their sellers, mm-hmm. um, to try to it ends up t- making them not take the FHA offer. Mm-hmm. And over the course of the last five years, how much impact has that made yeah. on people who primarily are using FHA because you can get into FHA with lower um, lower credit score, mm-hmm. with less money down. Um, and there's a whole group of people that have, by and large, been blocked out of a very competitive market already yeah. for the last five years because if you had an FHA offer, it just wasn't being considered. Right, right. The impact that that's going to make over the next, you know, 10 years when we look back is going to be, I think, devastating to the black and brown community. Yeah. And one more thing on this that I always want to point out. Well, two things. So you're absolutely right. By no means are, are we saying FHA is a bad product. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to be the best product for everybody's situation, right. period. Right. But what's the w- one positive I do take away from this for so many years we were challenging the lenders to not just pigeonhole LMI customers into an FHA just because you're using down payment assistance, you are going FHA. This data shows that it's different now where um, folks are being offered a conventional product, but just not pulling it through. Okay. So now we have to look at how do we, how do we change that to make sure these more products are available? Interesting. So, so progress, but still, still some ways to go. Exactly. Um, all right, uh, Rochelle, um, you're the NAREB Twin Cities immediate past board chair. Um, you talked about a, a little on, on uh, what, what, what we were talking about with Cam. Uh, what else uh, struck you when, when you read the report? Um, so many things. Like you said, it was 100 pages. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting because so many of the things are – the same things repeatedly. These are not new ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so that struck me, number mm-hmm. one, that we're not dealing with something new. We're dealing with the same kinds of ideas over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, what I talk about frequently is this idea that if we have the option to discriminate, we tend to. Mm. Um, and so many of the fair housing laws are based on that. You want to discriminate. And a lot of times people think that they can because it's their property that they own. And I don't want that person to have my house. I don't want to sell my house to that person. And they feel very entitled to that. Um, So there has to be laws to say, no, you're not entitled to that. You don't get to decide that. Um, So taking out the possibility, removing the option for people to discriminate. um, One of the things that we've been working on locally is taking names off of purchase agreements at the offer stage. Mm -hmm. And this came out of the multiple offers that were getting submitted on one property from seven to 45 and up offers Mm -hmm. on a single property. Like I said, if it was FHA, it just got kind of pushed to the side. Yeah. Cash was first. Conventional was after that. Um, But even in offer situations where it's not in multiple offers, people will look at names on a purchase agreement. And if it's a name that they can't pronounce, if it's a name that they think is foreign, 
if it's a name, if it's two men on a purchase agreement or two women on a purchase agreement, they'll decide, I don't want those people living in my cul-de-sac. I don't want those people living in my neighborhood. Um, my and, neighborhood that you're, that, that I'm leaving, but I still feel like I'm in charge of But they're still their neighbors and they feel like, yeah. Uh. Um, and so it gets very difficult for us in real estate to prove that right. you didn't take that offer because there were two men on the purchase agreement or because the name was Ebony Jones. Uh-huh. We can't. It's very difficult to prove that. Right. Um, and in the midst of trying to get people into houses, do we have time for long legal processes? Nope. So to right. take away, um, again, just removing the possibility to discriminate um, was one of them. Um, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of it. Yeah. Um, what I noticed across the board, though, is that I feel like there is underlying bias and discrimination um, that just is locked into everything that we do. The country, by and large, is steeped in right. racism. Right. It's what it was built on. So when we look at anything, whether it's a structure, a system, or an individual, we have these biases that come through regardless. Right. And I think frequently it's not intentional but that doesn't change the state of how we're conducting business. Right. The thing that strikes me the most in, in that department, because, you know, some people will say, oh, well, racism is legal now. We're not racist anymore. Um, the systems were built on this and and are still acting this way. Um, and, and the best example that I can use in my own head to explain this is uh, when you talk about appraisals, um, a house in a uh, historically redlined neighborhood is all of them are worth worth less than that same house would be in a different neighborhood that wasn't subject to that. Your appraisals are based on um, what did you call them? Uh, so we do a one mile radius ra- going back yeah. six months. So your all of this is 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 based on history. Mm-hmm. And history shaped it um, to be inequitable. And the current systems, a lot of them still are based on those systems. And so how do we start to change some of that stuff? And that's a much bigger conversation than than today's is. Um, but, but you know, that's that's what I try to do when I look at these things is, is, is try to find those concrete examples that are what they are and show, you know, how this legacy is still baked into the current system. Mm-hmm. So I just I just think it's it's. So from interesting. Two, from two angles, right? From that angle yeah. that you said. And then you have individuals mm-hmm. who, of course, they have a list of things that they're looking at and standards that they're held to, the same fair housing laws, mm-hmm. the appraisers. Um, but they're still, they're people. Mm-hmm. It's an individual. And it very much is up to whether they're having a good day or a bad day, yeah. how they feel about this particular house, this particular neighborhood, right. these particular people. They're just individuals, but they carry so much weight in these transactions. Right. And if an appraisal comes in low, again, the the process of trying to address that mm-hmm. is not an easy process. Right. And they are mm-hmm. not, you know, uh, oh, thank you for bringing that yeah. to my attention. Yeah. I definitely will go back and look, <laughs> you know, that's not what we get. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's difficult. And, wow. and the process and just to talk about the processes, this is a theme that and we, we were having this discussion before we went live, but this is a theme that we have in lending. It's on the appraisal side. It's on the agent side. Like, how do you how do you actually prove that something is discriminatory? Like we have data, we have systems in place. But when you have that human 
mm-hmm. that human gray area. How do you actually address that? And I think that's a, a challenge, a big yeah. one. Yeah, agreed. Um, well, I mentioned uh, the cool thing about this report is that it offers fixes uh, to help make the attainment of home ownership more equitable for black households and potentially reduce and eliminate the ownership gap. Um, and of course, this would also eventually impact the corresponding wealth gap, which is something uh, that, I mean, that has to be fixed one way or, or another. Um, so the proposed fixes in this report are as follows. There's six of them. And, um, and then we can talk about, you know, what these mean, why they matter. Uh, the first one, eliminate loan level price adjustments. I'm not sure I know exactly what that means, uh, and we can talk about it in a minute. Eliminate penalty fees to access down payment assistance. Uh, and, and as I always say on this show, down payment assistance is usually a loan. It's not free money. You're going to pay it back when you sell the house or however that works. Um, recalculate the impact of student loan debt. Uh, issue right now. Uh, Leverage special purpose credit programs. That is a super interesting area of uh, uh, potential impact that the center itself is is pursuing some some issues in this area. End discriminatory and abusive appraisal practices and fix the broken and out-of-date housing finance system. Uh, So let's talk about these. Um, Who wants to go first? Yeah, I'll start it off. Loan, loan level price adjusters. Mm-hmm. That's definitely been a hot topic in the lending world, specifically over the last few years. And for those that, that are not familiar, it's essentially risk-based lending. That's the term that it's given. So different things like, you know, your loan to value, which is just, you know, how much are you borrowing versus what your, your collateral, your home is worth, your credit score, your debt to income. These can, and a lot of times for mortgage products, they're on a matrix scale. So mm-hmm. if you're within a certain type of box, you might be at a higher rate than somebody who's in this box. If you're in this box, it might cost you more in closing costs to get that same rate as somebody who's mm. in that box. So, okay. Um, and and oftentimes we notice that it, it disproportionately impacts low to moderate income borrowers, um, black borrowers, definitely. Uh, when, you know, historically we have some disadvantages when it comes to credit strength, when it comes to assets and, um, you know, for using affordable lending products, we're usually going to borrow a little bit more against the home's value. So you're almost, and in some cases, you can be penalized for that. Um, you know, the positive in our market is we do have a lot of great affordable lending products that do not use loan level price adjusters. And um, that's something we should continue to focus on. Are those like points? Is it kind of the same thing? Yeah, it could be points. Um, that's what you're going to see in most cases where maybe if you're, you know, if you're yeah. under this credit score and you also have this loan to value, for this rate, it's not yeah. going to cost you an extra, you know, quarter percent in closing costs. So because points always baffled me, I was like, did not get them at all. Um, right. So interesting. Okay. Right. All right. Um, uh, what else struck you guys, or or, or what other of these uh, fixes sounds like it it makes a lot of sense, Rochelle? The um, one of the things, the idea of taking out the secondary loans uh-huh. for down payment assistance, I always talk to people about just being aware of the equity. People right. talk about buying houses and having a house and that just by virtue of having the house, you're building wealth. Yep. And that's not what real estate does. It's not how it works. Right. By having the house and creating equity, 
is how you build the wealth. The equity, the space between what you owe on the house and uh-huh. the new value of the house is how you create that. Uh-huh. Um, and so when people get into properties using down payment assistance, I think a lot of times they're not fully aware of how that impacts the a really good point. The yeah. equity that they have in their house or the yeah. equity that they don't have in their house right. or how to get to that point faster. Right. Um, people have a tendency to think everything in life is always just going to go up. I'm here and I'm going to get a raise next year and this thing's <laughs> going to happen and that thing happened and everything's just going to get better and mm-hmm. better. They never expect that they're going to lose their job or they're going right. to get divorced or something's going to happen where they need to sell their house. Right. And now they're needing to sell their house and they owe more money on it than they yeah. anticipated because they haven't been yeah. improving it and they haven't been working to pay that money off. Yeah. Um, so that was one of the things that I thought about is just making sure that people have that understanding of right. equity when they're using down payment assistance. Because, yeah. yeah, because the bottom line is um, every month you're making your mortgage payment. Mm-hmm. It's got um, principal, interest, insurance, and taxes. Yeah. The principal... Anything that goes to the principal is basically kind of like, and you tell me if I'm wrong here in this analogy, kind of like your own savings account. So instead of giving that money to the landlord, you're investing that in yourself. Yeah. But, um, uh, you, you know, if you, if you have a $300,000 house and you sell it and you still owe 290000 that's, you know, you probably didn't keep it long enough to make it make sense. Right. From a wealth building standpoint, wealth building, tell me if you agree, is um, it's a it's a slow and steady process. Yes, it's it's um, I mean, sometimes it happens over three, four years, which is great. But that's not how it usually is supposed to work. Yes. You know, I mean, it can also lose a lot in three or four years. Um, But over the long term, uh, you should be able to be building wealth. But, yeah, the down payment has to be repaid. The Mm -hmm. down payment assistance has to be repaid. You know, if you talk about some of these alternative models like land trusts and co not co-ops, but land trusts in Mm -hmm. particular, Mm -hmm. um, there's definitely a place for those, but that impacts the equity tremendously. Yeah. Because you don't own the land. You don't own the land. And in, in real you estate. You need to know that if you're going into that. Yeah. In real estate, I always say that I got my real estate license when I was 18. And I think that you register things in a different way uh-huh. at that age. Uh-huh. And I remember them saying, you own the land to the center of the earth and up to the sky. <laughs> and that's, there's value in that, uh-huh. right? You're not just buying this plot of land. Right. And yeah, in land trust, you don't have that. Right. You just have the land. It's it's very similar right. to renting. Right. Um, one of the other points about the equity that they made in here is um, for uh, black households, the equity in terms of their wealth is mm-hmm. 69% of mm-hmm. their wealth, where for white households, it's 59%. Um, and I thought that was interesting. And one of the things that they pointed out was that um, white households have a tendency to make to diversify their investments. Mm-hmm. So it's not just in their house, but it's also in stocks, in savings, mm-hmm. in IRAs, et cetera. Um, and that's one of those things that for the black community, black and brown community, we really haven't had access to until right. very recently. Right. So the notion of going to the bank, of trusting the bank, number one, uh-huh. but even having access we didn't have access to be able to right. go to the bank, open a savings account, and invest in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole notion of that is fairly new. It's a couple generations old. Mm-hmm. Um, the notion of saving generally is only goes back to the 70s of IRAs. Right. Um, I think Ross were 97. So the idea of just us saving money 
is right. very, very new. So when we look at it used to be the, pensions, right? Yeah, yeah, which we don't. Yeah. Um, it's almost so, unheard of now. Very much so. <laughs> Um, so the idea of why there is this wealth gap generally yeah. starts with home ownership, but yeah. you can very quickly see that those are the other components that yeah. create that and, and make it more difficult to shift it as quickly or as easily because it's just a very new concept. Right, right. Such a big issue. Um, anybody want to talk about special purpose credit programs? I can uh, I can talk a little bit about them to kick us off. the 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 center is um, is is so special purpose credit programs are um, financial assistance uh, that is aimed at that 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 can take race into account when talking about past discrimination and things like that. Right. Um, and uh, uh, we, I don't know enough about it to, to say exactly what we're doing, but we're, we're working on a couple things. We're working on a first generation down payment assistance program, uh, because when you're talking about, you know, who's been left out, it's usually they have not owned a house. Yep. Um, and so that first generation ownership is, is a step forward for the entire, you know, family and descendants and everything. Um, and, uh, and the special purpose tax credits, I don't know, you're going to hear more about those. I, I think I'll, I think I'll leave that where it is. We might do an episode on those at some point, but, um, the way that I understand them, uh, right now is up to a point you were not allowed to, you were supposedly not allowed to take race into account when, when thinking about, you know, down payment assistance, for example. Correct. And, um, a couple of the bodies came out uh, recently and said, actually, yes, you can and you should be. And so, um, all you know, it's a very influx issue. Do, any, do you two know any more about this than yeah, I do? Just from I read about it <laughs> as, as yeah. a result of this. Uh -huh. Yeah, I think it, it's an interesting dynamic because then you, you start. I do believe these are needed, you know, uh -huh. from the black community. We need something made for us that's tailored for us to help us kind of level that playing field and, and increase our home ownership rate. But it's also an interesting dynamic from a professional standpoint, because how do we make sure that this is something that is actually benefiting the community it was designed for? Right. So then you start getting into difficult questions about, okay, well, what actually makes somebody eligible for this special purpose credit? Are they telling us that they're they're black or are they telling us they're a first time mm -hmm. first generation home buyer so i think that that's interesting um i'm along for the ride to see how it goes i know i've worked with a, a lot of folks in your organization to have some input on on what these programs may look like but we're really not going to know until it rolls out it's just such a yeah. it's just such a um, different thing from a lending standpoint where you're usually not allowed to say anything about right some different protected bases and now this one's just out there saying hey this is this is for this specific community so yeah. i think it's needed uh, my my one one wish for it though is to make sure it's not just a fad it's not something that's right. in style now and you know we're doing it now but then 10 years from now it was just kind of like oh we tried it it right. didn't work so right. i like to see it actually stick around and um you know if it's successful maybe we can our community can lead the way for you know other communities that are underserved as well. I think there's potential there. Yeah. I know they're talking about it seriously. It's interesting that um, the state that we're in now was very intentional, mm -hmm. very intentional with 
uh, race being a, a major factor, yep. clearly written mm-hmm. by the like, FHA. Like, literally. Like, this is the guideline. This is the book that says right. you cannot lend to these people mm-hmm. names specifically based on their race. Yep. Right. Um, so the notion now that we can't fix it the same way is kind of a head scratcher. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, or and just that we need to explore the idea that something was done with purpose and intention, that right. if we're going to go about correcting it, right. then we need to go about correcting it with the same level of purpose and right. intention that I think is very frequently lacking because now it's like a, a tender spot that people don't really want to address. Right. Right. Um, but that's why it needs to be addressed. Right. Um, I did read that Biden set up a task force in 21 um, called right. PAVE, P-A-V-E. Yeah, I did a blog post on that. Yep. That they're working on making that more familiar and acceptable. And part of it, I think, was based in the redlined areas. Yeah. Um, to try to um, correct that. But yeah. I just wanted to throw that out there. I think it's interesting. It, it really is. It's being talked about quite a bit. And, and uh, you know, you look at uh, Rondo mm-hmm. and the freeway and, and all that that happened. And, um, it you know, it would be great if we could figure out, you know, how to make some amends for that in a fair way that kind of helps right. helps us all along. Because, mm-hmm. right. um, yeah, any, anyways. We should. We will do an episode of the podcast on special purpose tax credits. That sounds good. Any other uh, comments on these? Yeah, um, student loan debt. Yes, I feel like that's that. Has is it going to be? Addressed. Is ten grand going to be relieved or not? <laughs> no one that, knows. That's great. I think um, you know, from a lending standpoint, working with with buyers, specifically LMI buyer, buyers, um, my clientele that I primarily work with because of my NARAB affiliation are black families, typically first time uh, black buyers, and student loan debt is a major hurdle. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about you know trying to make your income fit into a certain box against your debts when you when you you know go to school and you have fifty. Seventy five hundred thousand. I mean, I see people that have six figure student loan debt and it's nowhere near proportionate to what they do for a career. And the way we calculate that, um, it varies depending on program. But typically, um, you know, right now, everybody's loans are deferred because COVID. So what lenders do is based on the program, we're either using anywhere from a half percent to two percent of that outstanding balance as a monthly debt payment, even if it's deferred. Even if it if it's deferred, the usually the only case that you're going to see a different calculation is if you have an income based repayment, huh. and that's where you're working with your student loan lender. You've submitted income documents, uh-huh. and they've created a different repayment plan to say, "Hey, you know what? You're paying a hundred dollars a month, two hundred dollars a month. We can use that." It's just the difficulty during COVID. Nobody had that, so right. if, you had, if you're deferred and you have a big balance. Most folks aren't going to call their student loan servicer to say, hey, I want to make a payment in an interest-free environment. So um, it's it's a big deal. And I, I think that's a bigger problem than just home ownership. It also leads into, you know, wage disparities and all types of things, the cost of education. But um, I, I think that's a really big deal as we just look at where inflation is going and just the cost of living, trying to find a more reasonable calculation for how we view student loans is is crucial and you know that gets into a a whole bigger tangent with you know why do we have so much student loan debt anyway and uh, one of the things you'll learn from the sheba report is uh, black students graduate with a on average higher amount of student loan debt for the same education that our white counterparts see it so that does factor into you know the 
the gap in home ownership here as well. Yeah, and that goes right back to the wealth gap. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Which goes right back to the home ownership gap. Absolutely. All these things are are related. Um, any other comments on these uh, proposed solutions? If not, I will. Uh, do you have something, Cam, or no? Uh, Feel yeah, free. I, I always have. Something. <laughs> no, please. So, uh, this is, this is great. Do, so it's like where does <laughs> one of the ideas, and and I really like this because this has been a, a personal theme that I'm looking at in my own personal ventures, but. When they're saying, you know, fix a broken and outdating, outdated uh, housing finance system. And one of the things it mentioned is having more accessible products where people that are moderate income, lower to moderate income, can rehabilitate all their homes and stay in their neighborhood yeah. versus getting priced out. And I think that's that's awesome right now. And it can solve a lot of different issues. You know, we, we have some inventory. I'll, I'll pass that over to the agent side. But we don't we don't have enough. So being right. able to, you know, rehab and create affordable housing for families to stay in the, the areas they choose is crucial. It shouldn't be just something that, you know, seasoned investors and, um, you know, hedge funds and groups like that get to do. And, but and the system's system's not set up for that very well right now. Is that right? Not quite. And, yeah. and there's a lot of reasons to it. You know, rehab products are more complicated. Right. There's no doubt about that. There's risk in it. There's a lot of other avenues to it but we can figure it out and i, I right. think that's that's something we we should look at as an industry is how do we make that more widely available yeah mm -hmm. yeah and it's one of those issues that has to be figured out one way or the yeah. one way or another um i even think about you know east side st paul where our offices are so many houses um in uh you know uh probably need some work yeah um, the, uh, f the folks living there are either living in an investor owned rental property yep. or it's paid off and they're retired and they don't have the income to try to rehab that. What's going to happen? Um, I think the city should be interested in that and, 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 you know, not just the owner. I mean, this is an this is an issue that impacts all of us. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh. There used to be more city-based grant programs mm -hmm. for fixing up your home. Um, I don't see it as much now. Um, and even if they do, it's a city by city and you have to already yeah. own the house. Yeah. Um, they tend to run out of money quickly, et cetera. Right. Um, I think like there's um, the FHA 203B or K, one of them that's a fix-up loan. Yeah, um, you can find it, yeah. And they do. They're they're hard to get into. So one of the things that I tell people is if they do get down payment assistance, I tell them to have reserves mm -hmm. already mm -hmm. and then use the down payment assistance. And it's the fix the fastest, easiest fix up loan that you can right. get. OK. Uh -huh. Right. It, it has to just be a house that's not in complete disrepair. Right. But you can update carpet. Right. You can get new appliances, new countertops, et cetera. Right. Um, in an older house using the reserves that you have in the bank, right. you use the money from your down payment assistance to get into the house. Yeah. Um, and I think that that idea, if we talk more to people about financing, generally speaking, finances, generally mm -hmm. speaking, that we will get to this understanding of how real estate is a component and aspect of that. Mm -hmm. But I feel like we don't usually go into real estate from that perspective. We go into real estate from a own a house perspective not how does that make money? Right. And then people right. again have this house 
and they don't know what to do with it. So when there's a downturn, the black and brown community is the ones that are hit the hardest right. by those downturns in housing, mm-hmm. in any downturn, in any financial downturn, but housing specifically, because again, that focus hasn't been on how money works yeah, and how you take this investment and make it worth something. Mm-hmm. Um, through equity, through being thoughtful of what are you doing with this. Right. Um, so I think that if we looking at changing the broken out of date system, I uh-huh. think part of that is talking about the system. The system is a financial structure. Right. And talking about the financial structure generally, because then people are not going into college taking on this huge debt. They're looking at an overall financial picture, mm-hmm. not just this one aspect, not just this one aspect of your home but all of it together right. because it's all tied together. Right. They don't teach but again, that. it's not talked about. Right. They don't teach it in the schools. And, I mean, and, people uh, that are in this business, I feel like don't. Yeah. I, well, I'm talking to you. I'm like, man, that is one smart realtor. <laughs> she knows a lot <laughs> about the finance side too. Um, but, uh, oh my gosh, I could talk about this stuff all day. Um, well, I, I, but, but I do think we're probably, uh, we're probably at our time here. So, um, such a great conversation. Um, if you're interested in exploring homeownership for your own household, you can take a home buying class and enlist the help of a homeownership advisor for free uh, by going to hocmn.org. That's homeownershipcenterminnesota.org. Our advisors and educators are embedded in organizations across the state, and they'll work with you to help get you mortgage ready, educate you on the buying process from A to Z, and walk with you through every step of the process. I want to thank our guests today, Rochelle Taylor and Cameron Perquette. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, In closing, I want to acknowledge our sponsors, Associated Bank, Midwest One Bank, and Old National Bank. Our sincere thanks to each of these organizations for their support. Um, And uh, that'll do it. Thanks for watching and listening. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.